Hello, hello. <laughs> hi, everyone. If you're new here, hi. My name is Genesis, and it's a pleasure to electronically meet you. And if you've been here before, hello, old friend. I'm happy you're here, and I am very grateful to be here, too. Now, today, as you can probably tell from the title, I am going to talk about nepotism. It's become a really hot topic lately, a real resurgence. And I'm so interested by not the topic, although I am interested by the topic, which is why I'm going to talk about it today, but I am definitely interested in why the resurgence is happening right now because there's absolutely nothing new being added to this conversation. It's the same gripes and grievances and annoyances and denials just with a new generation of people that are able to express or not express their feelings on the issue. And what's so interesting about this conversation that's occurring or recurring, I guess, is that it's really centered around Hollywood and the entertainment industry. And that centering to me is very comedic in a very like uh, life is comedy, not like haha amusing, but like it's comedic to me because I think that Hollywood being the focus gives nepotism this uh, mystical quality for the regular Joe Schmo who has no idea how the entertainment industry works and behaves. And I honestly don't either really understand the ins and outs and the the inner workings and the innards of the entertainment industry, industry, but nepotism being thought of contextually within this Hollywood entertainment sphere kind of makes it just super mystical when in reality, nepotism happens all of the time and is honestly one of the oldest aspects of human life that occurs when human families came into existence, like when the idea of a family, especially of a nuclear family or of like a proper European family um, and the importance of that, but not even European, when, when human families really just in totality came into existence, nepotism itself was born. And it's so interesting that it, it is so uh, focused on the entertainment industry because it's like y'all have never heard of a monarchy before. And I think that this focus might have something to do with many people being online way too much. Being online can make it seem like whatever niche or niche, I just combined both the pronunciations, whatever niche you pay attention to is the only thing that everyone else is seeing. Like not everyone is most people I would say aren't outraged about Sofia Coppola or Angelica Houston. Is that how you pronounce it? Houston? Houston? I've never actually heard it pronounced. I've just seen it on screen. But the woman who plays, um, oh my God, the Adams Family, what's her name? Starts with an M. Morticia um, in the Adams Family from the 80s or the 90s. Or like Jeff Bridges. Like no one is really outraged about it outside of the internet, really. Um, and whoever you're just now realizing has profited majorly off of their famous families in their entertainment career that whoever, maybe you or your friends or whatever, whoever they're obsessed about is just like really a narrow-minded approach to nepotism 
And I think that if people were to actually look around and off of their phones, they would see nepotism everywhere. It's something that is so prevalent that it's kind of silly to be upset about it because we just be, that's just one more thing to be upset about. (laughs) I think the conversation of nepotism though, in most cases, the outrage specifically around the entertainment and Hollywood industry is around and is so prevalent because there's such a lack of financial transparency when it comes to that industry. In 2012, Will Smith earned $100 million in income for Men in Black 3. $100 million for one movie. In 2012, just for context, there was a global recession and Will Smith alone earned $100 million for that one movie. Like, bitch, that's insane. $100 million for a movie? That's, like, incomprehensible to people to earn that much money for, like, a project. Direct beneficiaries, though, of that insane income include his children, who, in 2012, were both dependents and who, I think, by no coincidence, are also famous. I think that... What the real issue with nepotism is um, that a lot of people have when it comes to Hollywood is that it can be incredibly financially lucrative, can be incredibly financially lucrative. In some in some cases, it's the complete opposite. But for the people that we hear a lot about in the news, well, in the entertainment news, not like the political news, although that too, but a lot of the people that we hear about in the entertainment news are the people who are very financially stable or they seem that way because they're buying $27 million houses. And then when that person has children and when those children become famous in that same industry, whatever aspect of the entertainment industry that they choose to get into or even just like business, the money just stays in the family. Like social mobility can't really exist. It's all just recycled. So when Francis Ford Coppola's daughter fills in at the last moment for a part in The Godfather 3, the money that she gets from that paycheck just gets recycled back into the same famous community. Even Will Smith's son was in a movie with him at the age of like three. Even Beyonce's daughter won a Grammy at what, six? (laughs) Like That's insane that the money just keeps getting recycled back into the same community. And it feels like the outrage is being oddly directed at those children for being the recipients of that money, but really it's outrage at a system that allows people to get paid hundreds of millions of dollars for a single film um, or a single like producer's credit or actor's credit when there's so many people (laughs) in the world, especially during global recessions that aren't given the opportunity to make that kind of money for really, really hard work, work that might even be harder than just like acting in a film. But like I said, there are so many iterations of nepotism worldwide that focusing the attention and just calling like the people in Hollywood nepo babies is sort of, I think, 
um, eclipsing the fact that there's so many quote unquote Nepo babies. But what we're really getting at is like trust fund babies, I think is more the term that we should be using in that place. Because that's what the real issue is, I think. I think the real issue is in this lack of financial transparency. A big, a big one, a big iteration of nepotism that's currently making headlines right now, especially at the moment, is the quote-unquote royal family in England, the monarchy, which is essentially a monarchy is essentially a government of nepotism. Like why in our right minds would we think that being the child of a famous, rich, and lauded leader of a government means that that child is inherently qualified to run said government when their parent dies or passes the torch. And I'm going to tell you that it's not genetics. The royal family in England kind of feeling like they were ordained by God to be the rulers of not only that country, but also the colonizers of many, many others is nuts. It's absolutely delusional behavior. And it's not genetics because kings had children by concubines all of the time. Like they were constantly getting other bitches pregnant. Like, do you think there were condoms in England in the 1700s? Come on out. No. Left and right bitches were getting pregnant by the king. But what makes that child who's growing up in the royal family, quote unquote, in the um, the kingdom, in the castle, what makes them qualified is just this, is the spatial part of it, is the growing up in that environment, growing up in a space where power is so easily tangible and so accessible, and also a, a space where people are just giving you power at such a young age. What makes that child qualified is learning how to wield that power. They learn that there's things to do, there's things not to do. There's things that have negative consequences to the power, things that have positive consequences to the power, things that get you praised, things that get you exiled. There's things you can do in secret. There's people you can trust. And of course, having the family's finances, AKA everyone else's tax money, to back up nearly everything you do from going to the best school, to your lodging, to the gas that runs the car that gets you to and fro, that embolden someone with a certain power to be able to execute whatever orders they desire, whatever orders they see fit, because they know that people are going to listen to them because of their financial status or because of the power that they feel that they have inherently and because of the environment that they grow up in. And the envy that comes from that isn't mainly from someone wishing that they had the familial duties that a king or a prince might have or that a queen or a princess or whatever. I don't think people envy the, the duty. At least I don't think that's where the bulk of the envy comes from. I'm sure a part of the envy comes from like having something to do all the time, like never having to worry about um, boredom, I guess, or never having to worry about like losing a job, at least you hope. Um, I think it comes from, I think the envy comes from everyone else's knowledge that there is such a scarcity about when everyone else is left to fight for the crumbs of the cake that the, the monarchy holds. One thing I noticed a lot when I was in college 
was that a lot of kids would say that they were poor. Well, by kids, I mean like my fellow classmates. A lot of them would say that they were poor when they just weren't. And when I was growing up, the word poor was very much uh, not a word you wanted to claim for yourself. Like that, it wasn't even something that like being poor, you wanted to say that you were poor. <laughs> because it just wasn't a title that, you know, one person, one family, whatever, they didn't want to claim that. They didn't want to, they didn't want to be that. I went to a private school uh, in Seattle on scholarship. That was the college that I went to. I did not get a full ride though, because that full ride system at that school in particular was super rigged. But anyway, the only way that I could afford college at all was if I got a scholarship um, and I worked while I was in school and in between uh, sessions, like during the summer or during winter break, stuff like that. And I was starting to realize that I was poor. And it wasn't like I didn't know that, but I think that seeing how other people live, like other friends live, and then looking at myself and saying, okay, there's definitely a financial disparity here that makes it really hard for me to join whatever excursion you all are going on because like I just cannot afford to go out to eat I can't afford to uh, go to plays or shows or like go abroad or whatever you all are doing like I just can't afford to do that and so I realized like I can't even really afford to to get groceries sometimes like I okay I might actually be poor I need to conduct myself as such and I wasn't as poor in college I was as I would eventually become, but I was poor nonetheless. And at first, it genuinely offended me when people would say that they were poor, when they just meant that they were not wealthy or that they were not as rich as their parents were. And after the first year, I stopped letting it offend me, but I did what I had to do. I worked, I went to school, and I spent a good chunk of my money, the stuff that I wasn't using for rent on on drugs, really, to alleviate the pain and the trauma of, like, poverty, especially, like, long poverty. And it really impacted my mental health. And I think that this knowledge of, like, financial scarcity and of I mean, just scarcity in general, food scarcity and power scarcity and and help, that lack of help. And eventually in the U.S., kind of a lack of community really contributes to a lot of mental health shit that happens, especially in the United States. Um, to me, it's it's very clear looking back how much financial trauma impacted uh, bipolar disorder, like the uh, me having bipolar, it really impacted me. I felt like I couldn't complain to friends, or not even complain, I felt like I couldn't tell friends about it because uh, they were also like, oh, I'm poor too. And it was like, okay, if you're poor, I'm like, <laughs> I don't even know, like we're not even on the same level of, of poor if you are also poor. I think at that point in my life, I was making uh let me think i was making like 40 between 30 and 40 dollars a day which comes out to about 1200 dollars a month um on a good on a good month 
And I was also going to school. And I think my rent at the time was like 930 something a month. And that's not including like my other bills and, uh, you know, feeding myself and um, feeling like a human being in a world that doesn't just like work and go to school, but also like trying to have a semblance of a social life. And also like keeping up my addictions that I didn't always feel like I was just so sad and so sequestered and so depressed. And the closest thing that I could bond with, with my, with some friends, there was one friend that I could really just like cry. And she was like, yeah, that fucking sucks. And that's kind of (laughs) the best that someone can do, especially if they can't like financially help out. And especially if like, one is too proud to ask for financial help, which I totally understand that. It's hard to to be able to complain about financial trauma uh, because to an extent, everyone is feeling it. Um, and it came to a point where like friends at the time were like, oh, do you wanna take my antidepressants? And I was like, no. Antidepressants don't cure financial suffering. (laughs) They just don't. Um, And I would take jobs that would impact my mental health so severely. It was really, it, it is still hard for me to take jobs where I'm just a body on a line doing whatever someone else needs me to do. I've been told like in certain jobs when I ask questions, they're like, I'm not paying you to think, I'm paying you to do. So don't ask questions, don't use your brain, just do what I'm telling you to do. And in some cases that would end up in us having to do the whole thing over again or having to make the whole thing over again or whatever it was. And um, it really hurt so badly to be treated like just a body, personally. I know that for some people, that I've known and that I've met that feel really empowered by just being a body, by like not being asked to to think and not being asked to like perform mental tasks, but just being asked to like just perform what their body can do. And like, it really just depends on the person. But for me, it was really hard to, it is still sometimes really hard to only use my body rather than like being valued for the really unique, nature of my brain but also I feel like there's a another side to to nepotism that is really interesting um where people who are the receivers of nepotism also they're not always benefiting from that there's a little thing called a family business, which <laughs> some of y'all might have heard of, but family businesses are predicated on nepotism. Now we have some family businesses like Walmart, which is owned by the Walton siblings, which is a billion plus dollar corporation. And then there's local and then there's family businesses that are local businesses like the local taqueria on my block. I guess it's not my block, but it's the street over that is also a family business. Nepotism isn't just a rich upper class or like 1% kind of arrangement. Poor people also partake in nepotism as well because it keeps money within the family, or at least it tries to. Like that's why people name their businesses Solomon and Sons Moving Company 
Because if the dad starts a business or if the mom or grandfather starts a business, they can pass it on to their children and their grandchildren, which means that their grandchildren might have a job and might not have to worry about traversing the job market. And and that just um, giving of a job might save their grandchildren some trauma and pain, which eventually might save their lives. And it'll eventually save, it'll save them some time. Even if the business that they're passing down doesn't make $1 billion a year, we want, or at least me, I think that if we have kids, we are obligated to want our children to do better and to be better than us. And, you know, the the grandparent or the parent might have enough agency or enough like belief and hope in themselves to start a family business and not because they're even really in love with the industry they decided to go into, but because they might know the job market is going to get more and more competitive. And if they raise their children in that trade, whether it's understanding construction or electrical wiring or plumbing or underwater welding, that having that niche, having that trade really helps people feel important and it helps people feel like they matter in the society. And then maybe their children won't have to spend so much time floundering about trying to figure out what they're going to do. You know, it really is for human posterity that nepotism exists in some cases. And I understand that. Personally, I hope that I make enough money where my children don't have to suffer the exact same financial trauma that I have suffered for a while. And that my family before me has suffered for a while. I hope that I can break that generational poverty and that working class scarcity mindset that lots of Black, Afro, Indigenous, and Indigenous families have, that my family has. Like, my God, if my children have to survive under global capitalism, I pray they don't have to survive it in poverty. That's just like, that's the prayer that I think lots of people pray for their children, or at least like better parents, you know, might pray for their children. Which means that I think that there's so many more people that are the receivers and sometimes beneficiaries of nepotism. There's so many more people than we think. I remember in high school, this uh, girl that I danced with was complaining about having to work at a shift at her dad's restaurant. And I thought, that is so cool that your parent owns a business and that you can just have a job if you want it. That was practically foreign to me. Like I did not and do not have a parent that owns a business and that even has any nepotism to give out to me, any favoritism in their position to give out to me. Now I understand her side of it though, uh, which was that she, because of her parent, had a direct financial stake in the business. And that if she didn't come to work, then the business would suffer and her parent would suffer and her family would suffer, meaning ultimately that she would suffer. So going into work made sense. And it felt like a burden for her to do so, which, which makes, and I completely understand that suffering is one of those things that's universal. Whether we work in the family business or not, whether we have money or not, whether we come from a family that can give us a job 
or not. Suffering is always there. And also financial abuse and financial trauma is real and it happens all of the time. Whether it's coming from within the family or from within the government or if your government is the family, then both. People not being able to afford life though because they can't afford clean water or health insurance or good food or access to safe and stable shelter or a non-militarized and surveilled existence, whether they have a family business or not, is real. And that abuse happens all the time, whether or not we are the receivers of, of nepotism. So what I'm trying to say essentially is that I don't think that this conversation about nepotism, I don't think that it's as clear cut as people are trying to make it out to be online. Like it's not so black and white. It's not like if you're a nepo baby, you are a wealthy person and you're in the top 1% and you're benefiting from this. Um, and then if you're not, not a nepo baby, then you're like not benefiting from any other kind of nepotism that you are uh, poor and you understand scarcity. Cause that's just not, it's just not the truth. It's it's just not the truth. And clear cut answers and definitive right or wrong opinions is kind of, it's easier to sell that. It's easier to make a video and have that get views or clicks and engagement about why you think something is just inherently wrong. And that's not very healthy. It's not very healthy to the people making it, making that content. And it's not helpful or healthy to the people who are blindly kind of receiving that, that content. Especially because I think that that clear cut answer, that yes or no, right and wrong opinion is a deflection so that we don't have to look at all of the ways in which nepotism may have gotten us where we are today and how nepotism may have us or our loved ones in a shitty situation of suffering. Like it's just it's just easy to take a look at this mystical entertainment industry and be like, that's the problem. Nepotism is such an issue in this arena when it exists everywhere. It's also, I think, impossible to talk about nepotism without talking about money. But for some reason, finances are such a secretive and sometimes even impolite for some people topic to talk about, which means essentially that there's a lot of shame that's not being addressed. Whether that shame is because we are the beneficiaries of financial support from our parents who willingly give it to, to us, or whether because we are the receivers of uh, business advice and business acumen and, and uh, we are benefiting from that, whether it's because our family owns a business and we have to work at that business in order to keep it afloat, even if we're not really engaged in the industry, or whether we have no connection to nepotism at all and we're kind of just watching with envy or with gratitude people uh, in their own nepotistic families, whatever the case may be, there's so much shame that's involved in this conversation. And we need to address it. I'm someone who believes that what is hidden will eventually come to light. And I'm perfectly okay with that not happening in my lifetime. 
But I do think that it's important that we start having honest and open conversations about money, about our shame around it, about our necessity of it. We need to be vulnerable. We need to deal with it by being vulnerable about it. I said this in a, in a I think, episode 16, that shame is my friend. And shame is my friend because it does what many, many friends, if we want to call them that, won't do, which is alert you to your shit. Alert you to the things that you need to focus on in your life. Like personally, shame has alerted me to so much stuff about my body image that I'm like, yeah, I don't want to keep living with that shame. I want to actually figure out more about that. I want to go into my past. I want to probe my generational trauma or whatever to figure out why does this impact me so much or mental health or whatever the case may be. Shame is my friend because shame calls me out on my shit. And I think that we all need a friend like that. And we all actually have a friend like that. I think everyone experiences shame to some degree. And that leads me actually to the book that I finished reading this week. The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid. My official review is, it wasn't bad enough to make me stop reading it, but it wasn't good enough that I couldn't put it down. This is sort of a tangent, but I used to really look up to the writers who had that New York Times or whatever reputable journal's bestseller seal of approval. Not that I would only read their books. Um, actually, it's more the opposite. I probably haven't read many bestsellers in my life thus far because I felt like, oh, that's a really big title. I don't know if I can I can read that. I've, I've uh, been reading at a pretty high level since I was a very young kid, but I still was very intimidated by that seal of approval. But now I've started to kind of crack into the bestsellers, that kind of tier of fiction. Um, and I gotta say, I wasn't really missing out <laughs> at all. There, it doesn't mean that the book is better. It took me a while to come to that uh, conclusion, I guess. Uh, but I've read a lot of really shitty books that are on the New York Times bestseller list. And I realized that um, it has nothing to do with the book being good. <laughs> but but reading those books has gotten me thinking about mid-century nepotism, especially The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Um, it's kind of about mid-century nepotism, or at least like creating the financial wealth to be a part of that tier where uh, our children can benefit from that, from that nepotism. Now, Evelyn Hugo, the titular character, really is so interesting. And I think it's too bad that the book, the plot, is really focused around her husbands uh, and wife. It's also a little gay, which is lovely. Um, but I, I wish that the book was just Evelyn from the first person. Um, 
because I can only imagine her mental state. I can only imagine her, her thoughts as she's going through all of this. And uh, to me, it was just like, there was just too much going on. Cutting out all this shit about the biographer whose like name I can't even really remember. Um, cutting out all that shit, like just would have made it so much better. Like just reworking the whole thing. It was just too much because Evelyn Hugo is a really interesting character. And if someone were to make this into a movie, they really should just make it about Evelyn Hugo because that way we can actually get moments alone with her without like going through the, the biographer intermediary who in feeling only caught, I feel like she cock blocked me from getting the juicy parts of the book, like the really juicy parts of the book. It felt like reading uh, this other book, Funny You Should Ask, uh, which also wasn't very good, but it had that same kind of style. And it felt like reading Pamela Anderson's autobiography. And it felt like watching Julie and Julia, but like a 2% on Rotten Tomatoes version of Julie and Julia all at the same time. It was, <laughs> it was, it was intense. So basically the plot is that uh, there's this famous uh, actress, businesswoman named Evelyn Hugo, and she married seven men um and i'm not gonna bury the lead she's bisexual and uh it talks about her life in terms of love and uh, she's like rising through hollywood she meets a whole bunch of men some of them are directors some of them are like people who got her to hollywood one of them was a what would be coined now as a nepo baby i hate that term though um but she kind of talks about that a little bit which i thought was really interesting and i would have loved a moment in the book where we got to hear her talking with like her ex-husband um and his parents about their relationship and about their proximity to power but we don't get that in the book. It's, it's a lot of this book really just like falls short for me, but it talks slightly about nepotism in the mid-century United States and Hollywood specifically. And it really all comes down to white supremacy love. Like it really does. It's just like, <laughs> that's just what it is. Let me explain this though, in terms of the movie industry, because white supremacy ideology is like a big term to throw around, but I'm going to I'm going to make it simple. The Academy Awards were created in 1929. At this point, desegregation and lynchings were occurring everywhere. And not just for black people. And that's where your mind is going. There's colonization happening. I mean, it's insane. Hattie McDaniel was the first non-white person to win an Oscar. And that was in 1940. This is 11 years after the Academy Awards were first created, which means that for 11 years, there were no non-white people at all that were, excuse me, just burped. There were no non-white people at all that won an Oscar. And that wasn't that long ago. Like we haven't even had a hundred of these Academy Awards. And if you go deeper into it, 
the board of governors that uh, chooses who wins the Academy Awards, um, they were all white. <laughs> all those, those people were white. And the movie industry involved people at the top who were rich with old money, which means that slavery and colonization money, who were investing in all of this. And so really what happened is that the money stayed with those people, with those white men in this case, and their families. And so we go a step further and we think, okay, so in the entertainment industry and in Hollywood, who do we think set the precedent for the topic of money to be so taboo? Hmm? You know? So I think it's important that we do research a bit of our history when it comes to Hollywood and the entertainment industry, because it's really not the fault of the people who were born into that situation, who are the the product of like two famous Hollywood people or like one really famous Hollywood director or have the last name of someone who is really prominent in Hollywood. It's not their fault. I think that fault has nothing to do with this. This goes back way, 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 way back. Like, past the beginning of the Academy Awards, past all of that. And I think it's important that we remember that um, it's not so black and white, right? Like the truth of what's happening is super gray. But that's just my two cents or really like 38 minutes sense of of nepotism. And uh that's all I have for you today. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you made it to the end with me. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. This is such an interesting topic. And maybe I'll make a part two about this. I say that about like every episode, though, like, I love talking about this. I'll just make a part two. I'll get around to it at some point. Maybe I'll do like a season where it's just like a part two of everything I talked about this season. Speaking of seasons, um, I'll be doing 20 episodes in this season, and I'm going to take a break. I've got two more left. Um, thank you to everyone who has listened so far and that has stuck around. Uh, this has been such a cool project to take on. Um, this format of writing and of talking and of uh, expressing my thoughts, it's been really interesting. But like I said, there's two more left in this season and I'll be coming back with something new and interesting and um, I hope you all enjoy that too. Uh, I'll see you all next Sunday. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so grateful that you were here. And I'm likewise so grateful to be here too. Bye.